Hi, I'm Amanda. And I'm Kim. And this is The Department, a podcast about trends and how they define the world around us. Welcome to episode 52 of The Department. Today is part two of my little deep dive into trendy processed foods of the past. And I'm so excited to talk about this today. I was literally laughing out loud as I worked on the script for this one. Um, It was such a delight to research. But before we get into that, Kim has some stuff to tell you. Thank you, Amanda. This is definitely the most important part of the whole this, thing. This episode, thing. obviously, yeah, sure. <laughs> is make sure to share our podcast with your friends and family. It's really how we get the word out there and get this community growing. Um, so, you know, uh, you can go to our website, thedepartment.world. You can just, you know, send a link directly to them. You can send it through Apple Podcasts. Very easy to share our podcast. You can also go onto our Instagram, follow us if you haven't already. The underscore department. I'm sorry, what is it? Underscore. Oh my God, you uh, new here? At <laughs> underscore the underscore department. <laughs> at underscore the underscore. It really rolls department. off the tongue. It really you know? does. <laughs> <laughs> For sure, share our posts, share our content, and you know, let's just like, we'll keep the ball rolling. I mean, we are at, um, I believe it's been our one year anniversary already. Dang! Yeah, wow, that went really fast. <laughs> Actually, really did. It really, really it? did. Yeah, I mean, that's because you and I are both such workaholics. I feel like yeah. that makes time go really fast. It certainly does. Um, lastly. You know, follow us on your preferred streaming service. Um, it definitely also helps our follower growth and getting our community growing there too. So, um, you know, throw in a star rating if you if you have Apple Podcasts and maybe even take it a step further and leave a review. I haven't seen a new review up there in a while. Rude. So, you know, if you haven't left one, it would be super nice to hear from you. Agreed. Uh, you know, everyone, not to like guilt you or anything, but this week is my birthday. It's going to be another sad pandemic holiday. This would be a great chance to cheer us all up because Kim's birthday is coming up too That's next true. month uh, by writing a review or recommending the department to a friend. We would really appreciate that. What are you going to do for your birthday? Uh, I don't know. I'm depressed about it. I'm like another year of not being able to do anything. Um, because you know what, where I live, vaccination is low, cases are really picking up a lot of momentum, and I don't feel safe like eating in a restaurant or going on a trip right now. So yeah. probably just another day alone. I mean, home. maybe maybe you can have like an animal product, you know, because <laughs> you live with a vegetarian. Maybe you can have like some, some chicken, a rotisserie chicken. Wow. Wow. <laughs> some shrimp. <laughs> oh my god, I would have shrimp 
like since before the pandemic. And I almost just the thought of that just brought tears to my eyes. <laughs> um, yeah. So I don't know. I don't, you know, I mean, Dustin's like not really good at birthday stuff. I so, know. Yeah. And I mean, last, like, I'm going to be honest, last year on my birthday, I totally cried because like, I didn't hear from anyone in my family. I didn't really hear from any of my friends. And I was just like, ugh, I'm so alone Damn. and depressed. Even yeah. though, you know, I was in a house with Dustin and Dylan. It just, it was really, really depressing. And I'm not like eight and think that my birthday is the most important day of the year for everyone. But you know what? I just feel like in the last year and a half, we really need to take care of our friends and family and just let them know as often as possible that they're important to us. Thank you, Amanda. I agree. <laughs> I agree, right? We yeah. all agree. Yeah. Um. Anyway, so yeah, leave us a rating, a review, follow us. Uh, <laughs> after that, you guys. After that. How can you, know, you, how can you say no? How can you say no? <laughs> Um, also, if you have a suggestion for an episode, you want us to tell us about a trend we're missing, you want to share your own story, feelings, feedback, your own mid-century food recipes or memories, whatever, please hit us up. You can call our hotline number. You can send us a voice memo that you've recorded on your phone or computer. You can send us an old-fashioned email. You can DM our Instagram account, which is run by Kim. I know she has all kinds of hot convos over there. Um, and you can find all of our information in, well, at our website. If, if the show notes will take you to the website. The website will give you all the information. <laughs> I mean, the next episode that I'm working on was um, uh, someone who listens to the podcast and someone that I do know. At, wow. uh, a D, I think either texted it to me or DM'd me or something like that. This It was an article and I was like, oh my God, how have I not seeing this trend. I must do an, an episode immediately on it. Oh my gosh. I can't wait. Yeah. I can't wait. Do you like to give the kids a treat after school? Smart mothers make it a Velveeta treat for extra fine nutrition because Kraft's famous pasteurized processed cheese spread is extra good for youngsters in sandwiches and cracker snacks. Besides tasting so good, today's Velveeta is richer than ever in vital non-fat food values from milk. Just these two ounces of Velveeta give your child more high-quality protein, more calcium, more phosphorus, as much riboflavin, and more vitamin A than a big eight-ounce glass of fresh whole milk. Weight-watching moms and dads should enjoy Velveeta, too, because its extra goodness comes from the non-fat part of the milk. Velveeta and fruit are a smart dessert especially if you young mothers before and after the baby comes. Give your whole family more of milk's vital food values the Velveeta way. Kraft's nutritious Velveeta is full of health from milk. This week we're going to be talking more about trends of the past, although they do all connect to today and they're all about food. And thinking about like trendy foods over the years, I mean, I started – I kind of overwhelmed myself because there were just so many out there. Um, you know, think about snack wells and all the low-fat eating of the late 80s mm. and early 90s mm -hmm. or when everyone was into Atkins or California blend frozen vegetables. I don't know what that is. I want to say California blend. It's like a very late 80s, early 90s thing of like cauliflower, 
carrots and broccoli. And all of a sudden, all the like frozen vegetable companies were serving them and you'd see them on as like side dishes in cookbooks. Um, I mean, there's just, there's just Mm. been so many trends. Charcuterie, like that's a more recent trend. Um, I mean, it's just like, we are trendy people and we are trendy about food. So this week I was lucky enough to acquire two really important pieces of processed food history. Um, One is the favorite brand name recipe cookbook, which, Kim, you are not going to believe this. I found it in a free bin at a yard sale. What? Gave this puppy away. Uh, What luck. What luck. uh, Filled with culinary delights. And then I also got the new can opener cookbook by Poppy Cannon, which I talked about in the last episode where you just like – Here's how to make this fancy meal using only canned foods. And canned macaroni and cheese comes up a lot in that cookbook, by the way. And I like – I have no memory of this. I wonder if it was like a weird mid-century phenomenon. Um, I think so. If you're listening to this and you have memories or experiences with canned macaroni and cheese, please let us know and tell us all about it and what it was like. I mean, I I remember, you know, I mean, Chef Boyardee. Mm Mm-hmm was really big, which was like, obviously, it was with a tomato sauce. So I can imagine some sort of cheese sauce instead. And you know, I don't know why it grosses me out so much, because you're right, I ate a ton of <laughs> Chef Boyardee when I was a kid. It wasn't like my favorite, but I would eat it. Yeah. And like, Cheese Whiz and like Velveeta are like non-refrigerated cheeses, which I'm assuming is what would be in a canned macaroni and cheese. But mm-hmm. it just like really creeps me out to think of it in a can. It's just like a weird psychological thing. I need to get yeah. over it. So I thought before I jumped into uh, the main part of this episode, I thought we could just look at some of these weird recipes in my favorite brand name recipe cookbook. So Kim – Tell me a number, any number between 1 and 300. 240. 240. Okay, let's turn to page 240 here. Um, taking us into the dessert section, which features, among other things, Lando Lake's Butter Batter Bread. Uh Libby's Country Corn Muffins, which these are interesting because it's a can oh. of Libby's Whole Kernel Corn. Okay. Milk. No measurement there, which is a little weird, dodgy to me. <laughs> Some milk. Uh, one egg, mustard, instant. Mustard. Yeah, instant minced onion. Ew. And then a package of corn muffin mix. It's like it's like how much how much milk do you want to add? It depends on how gloopy you want your cornbread. I guess so. It just says add enough milk to liquid to make amount called for on corn muffin mix. Oh, okay. So you just read the instructions on the corn muffin mix. I don't know. I feel like there was some corner cutting yeah. here at the favorite brand name recipe cookbook company. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, let's do one more. Pick another number between one and three hundred. Okay, uh, one thirteen. 113. Hopefully we're going to be in the mains. Uh, Bold move. We are in the mains. And here we are. We've got something called supper nachos. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds sounds delicious. Pretty good. Yeah. It's ground beef, (laughs) onion, Lowry's seasoned salt, cumin, refried beans, taco seasoning mix. I mean, this all sounds really good to me, right? Actually would. I mean, you know, I would eat. I would eat a variation on that. Yeah, that's that's it's not bad. Um, that wasn't like the grossest stuff in here. Oh, I just t- randomly turned to page 
177 kind of by accident, which is the salad section. And you know, this is where things always get really dodgy in these kinds of books. (laughs) There's one thing called carrot raisin salad, which (laughs) is just raisins, carrots, canned pineapples, mayonnaise. Oh, I think I was like, okay, I feel like, you know, we can get, we can get away with some, some braised carrots. It'll be like a Moroccan thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have the mayonnaise. Now, now, interestingly enough, below, so that was the sun-made raisins carrot raisin salad. Right below it is something called favorite carrot salad, which is also carrots, raisins, but rather than pineapple, it's celery, chopped nuts, and then, of course, mayonnaise. Oh! <laughs> um, yeah, anyway, this this recipe book, every time you open it, I mean, it is just like, the wild we'll talk about it a little bit more in this I mean, episode but did you ever go to potlucks when you were a kid yes and this is the kind of stuff that would be yes. there right i remember it was always like very suspect i mean i'm from wisconsin and so you're you, in it you're in it and then like if you went to like let's say a funeral in north because like, you know we had family my family was from northern wisconsin um by the eau claire area and okay. um it got it was very, very dodgy up there. Like the the food, <laughs> it was practically <laughs> inedible. Like we would have like family reunions, and I just remember it was like all like pickled herring and like oh. like, like weird Jello salads and like seven layer salads and like just mm-hmm. like ma- mayonnaise based everything. Like it was basically like you'd eat a roll. I remember just seeing like okay, I'm just gonna eat the desserts. Like me and my sisters uh-huh. would just not even know how to process the the, the grossest. It was all like mid century food. Yeah, no, same where I grew up, minus the herring, but substitute bologna. Everything had oh. bologna in it. But what was weird is like as I was looking at this favorite brand name recipe cookbook, I realized there were a lot of things in here that definitely I would see at these like family. Yeah dinners, you know, potlucks, what have you, family reunions. And, you know, one important phenomenon of the 60s, 70s, 80s that still exists now actually even, but like not to such a degree is that every company made their own cookbook that you could buy at the checkout for like five cents or like get free if you bought certain stuff or they'd send it to you in the mail and, you know, they'd put recipes on coupons and in ads and stuff. And so this book and you know, I know it's part of a recurring series here, uh, would collect all of these recipes. Mm -hmm. So like the adults in our life, in our lives, were definitely like finding these recipes in one way or another, you know, they might be in the parade magazine. Yeah. Yeah. And there were just, there were a lot of things in here and I was like, oh, whoa, okay. That is a thing Mm -hmm. that people ate apparently. Yeah. (laughs) It was, yeah, and then they would pass the recipes around. Yeah. You remember, remember like, your mom's, your mom, like, passing recipes to, like, a friend or whatever? Oh, totally. It's like, oh, she would, like, come back from a dinner party, and she'd be like, I got this new, she'd always bring, like, a salad dressing. It was always, like, really sugary, which was never, like, my forte, but it was always, like, this is called the, like, the the (laughs) million-dollar dressing and it's like poppy seeds and stuff <laughs> this sounds horrible to me already i hate a poppy seed dressing for the most part i remember it being sort of trendy for a couple years there where maybe like i was in late elementary school where like pasta salads seemed to be what all the yeah. moms and aunts were way into and they were always 
bad pasta salads popping up or coming into our house. But like, like just <laughs> like miracle gross. whip and like raisins. Yes, miracle whip. <laughs> exactly. And then like some celery and yeah. like no seasoning, you know. Not it would be like, friendly. come on. Come over and have my Southwest pasta salad. It's a packet of taco seasoning, yeah. some elbow noodles, uh-huh. some Miracle Whip, Super and easy a to put can, oh. totally, and a can of that corn that had the chopped up peppers uh-huh. in it. That would be it. And it would be like so salty, it's so weird, so mayonnaisey. I mean, there's just like so many so bad mayonnaise. pasta salads. Or, or it would always be like a can of cream of mushroom soup. Oh, yeah, dude. Like the classic so chicken dinner with yeah. like the cream, uh, like all those cream soups, which were disgusting anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah, what a weird, what a weird, weird time. But it, none of it was, none of it was kid friendly. Like, like no. kids back then, it really was a completely different world. Like kids just kind of had to eat the the weird grown up food or they just didn't eat like like you didn't get like the froze that's what you're probably gonna talk about the frozen TV dinners were always really helpful because the, the grown ups could eat whatever they wanted and the kids would eat their like disgusting chicken totally. nugget carb carb meal totally well I feel like when you and I were kids there like there weren't a lot of foods specifically for kids outside of like you know cereal and yeah. like snacks like fruit roll ups and whatnot but there weren't like so many kinds of like dinosaur shaped chicken nuggets and like little macaroni and cheese like mm-hmm. menus for kids and stuff like that. The kids menu at a restaurant when we were a kid was basically just smaller servings of adult food. It would be like hamburger, spaghetti, hot dog. Yeah. You know, like like that's what it would be. And now it's like dinosaur chicken nuggets with a side of macaroni and cheese and you know a cookie. And like it it just as a kid, you was just like, good luck out there. Yeah. Because I mean, what we nutrients eat- is in that? That is just uh, not even that's not that's not enough for a growing child. <laughs> I mean, I yeah, the the gross stuff, like as we were reading about that carrot and raisin salad, I had a really horrible flashback oh. of being forced to eat that at my aunt's house. Oh. Like that was definitely one that was making the rounds. Oh, no. I know. I know. I mean, it sounds good on paper. No, it doesn't. It doesn't even sound good on paper. (laughs) Anyway, um, today we're going to talk about three major food innovations that really, I mean, they've changed our lives even. But like for you and me and everyone else who's listening, we have lived in a world where these, these foods have always existed, but they didn't always exist and they really changed how people ate. So the first one is craft macaroni and cheese, or as they call it in Canada, craft dinner. In the UK, they call it cheesy pasta. Wait, wait what did you say? You said Canada? Canada. Yes. Canada. Canada. In Canada, they call it craft dinner. <laughs> um, I don't know about you, though. Like, I think of macaroni and cheese as the quintessential American food, specifically like in now times, right? Mm-hmm. Like. What could be more American than macaroni and cheese? And I know that that title is supposed to belong to apple pie, but real talk, I've eaten way more mac and cheese in my life than apple pie, right? Although apple pie is delicious. Just don't get weird with it and put some carrots and like, I don't know, like lime jello. Raisins. I mean, every once in a while, I like a cooked raisin in things. I do not like a straight out of the box raisin, I cannot handle the texture. Oh, yeah. Or like ones that have been sitting in those little like boxes uh, for a little while. That is exactly 
what I'm talking about. Uh-huh. We were like, is this a raisin it's like or is molded. this a fly? It's, yeah. it's so gross. It's disgusting. It's so disgusting. Well, macaroni and cheese probably had its origins in Italy. The anonymous Liber de Coquina, the Book of Cooking, was a book written in Latin sometime in the late 1200s, early 1300s. And it has a recipe called this, I don't know Italian at all, so I'm apologizing to everybody in advance, called De Lasanas, which we can call the first macaroni and cheese recipe. It's Yeah, it sounds like, um, almost like lasagna. Right. Well, it was made with lasagna sheets, which I get the vibe in this era was kind of like the most common pasta. You know, they didn't have quite the technology to create all these other shapes yet. Mm -hmm. So lasagna sheets were made from fermented dough and cut into two-inch squares that were then cooked in water and tossed with grated cheese, most likely Parmesan. Mm. This sounds delicious, right? The author also suggests adding spices and layering the lasagna noodles like the lasagna we know today. Um, Wait, and that this, sounds- that's the, that's the 1200s, early 1300s. I, I feel like like <laughs> every time we look at recipes from the past, it's basically just like absolutely unacceptable in this day and age. And that, that's I know. like you know what I wouldn't mind being in Italy during that time period. No, it seems refreshing. Mm-hmm. It seems very modern, right? Mm-hmm. Well, this dish because it was so great caught on throughout Europe and as we learned in the last episode, food trends really stuck around for a long time back then. It wasn't a classic snack oils in, snack oils out kind of situation. In the 14th century, a famous medieval French cookbook called The Form of curry shared a cheese and pasta casserole known as macarons. Mm. That's I totally botched that pronunciation. You don't ma- it doesn't matter. It's okay. Uh, right. This was made with fresh hand cut pasta, which was sandwiched between a mixture of melted butter and cheese, which sounds delicious. Sounds delicious. Well, I mean butter and cheese and I mean I pasta. say the word butter and I start salivating, right? <laughs> The first modern recipe for the dish, like something that's getting a little bit closer to what we recognize. I mean, I already feel like we're there, but they were kind of just throwing stuff in a pan at this point. Now, this modern version could be found in this recipe book written in 1769 by writer Elizabeth Raffald, and the book was called The Experienced French Housekeeper. Yeah, I know. What a great name. Mm -hmm. Her recipe calls for a bechamel sauce with cheddar cheese. It's mixed with macaroni, sprinkled with Parmesan, and baked until bubbly and golden. So it is delicious, right? Delicious. A Canadian take on the dish. I don't want you Canadians to feel left out. It was published in Modern Practical Cookery in 1845. And this was seen as an iconic English interpretation of macaroni and cheese. It called for puff pastry to line the baking Mm. dish. The cook is instructed to stew the noodles in a cream thickened with egg yolks with a little beaten mace and mustard to sharpen the flavors before grating Parmesan or Cheshire cheese over top. This sounds great. Yeah. I'm like, why don't we have macaroni and cheese with puff pastry? Let's just go for it. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) I'm shocked that we don't. I mean, we have, we have macaroni and cheese pizza. 
We do. <laughs> That's true. What a blessed time uh-huh. to be alive. <laughs> I actually just saw, I, I, I use, sometimes I use this prescription service called Move. It's like online, it's kind of like an online grocery service. And literally yesterday they came out with these, um, these like pot pies, these new, new New Zealand pot pies, which are usually kind of filled with like ground beef or a curried chicken. And they had one with macaroni cheese in it oh. in a puff pastry. And I was like, that's intense. It is intense. It would make me poop my pants, but <laughs> it would be delicious. It would be delicious. Yeah, yeah. Throughout this, like, I guess, like, 500-year period that I've walked you through so far of macaroni and cheese history, at all of these points, for the most part, macaroni and cheese would have been a food for the most upper-class people. And that continues when we come to the United States. There's a lot of disagreement about how macaroni and cheese made its mark here in the United States. The first possibility is that the food took hold in the upper-class homes of New England in the early days of the colonies, where it was called macaroni pudding. Mm. Not not a great name. It sounds like it's got mayonnaise in it. <laughs> and pistachio pudding, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I had to look at too many pudding recipes last week. I'm like, I can't. Um, this, like its predecessors, would have been a dish – only the wealthiest people could have because at that point, pasta was very rare here in the United States and therefore super expensive. One school of thought is that Thomas Jefferson fell in love with pasta in a cheesy sauce during a trip to Italy because pasta was not available in the colonies. This would have been very novel to him. Mm. So as president, he served macaroni and cheese at an 1802 state dinner. And this kind of cheese most likely would have been a Parmesan-style mm. cheese. But the most likely origin of the modern macaroni and cheese also does take place in Jefferson's household, but the credit goes to James Hemings, Jefferson's enslaved cook. Mm. Well, really, let's just call him what he is. He's a chef. Mm-hmm. Hemings was born into slavery, and at the age of nine, he, along with some siblings and his mother, moved to Monticello. Why? Because they were part of the property that Jefferson inherited from his wife's family. So Jefferson went to France, I want to say for five years, and he took Hemings with him. And then at that time in France, Hemings was apprenticed to some of the finest chefs in Paris and learned how to cook all kinds of incredible food. Um, And in France, because slavery was not legal there, he was actually a free man who could come and go as he pleased. And he even was paid for his work there, although significantly less than his white counterparts. Mm. But they moved back to the United States, where suddenly he's a slave again. At some point, Jefferson went to Italy. He didn't take Hemings with him. But when Jefferson returned, he explained the dish to Hemings in hopes of recreating it. Like, he literally drew diagrams of the pasta and the process of making pasta and what the dish looked like and, you know, really, really worked on this. They tried, not Hemings didn't do this, but other people in the area tried to replicate this pasta machine for Jefferson, but it never really worked out. And so ultimately, Jefferson would just import pasta from Europe. Once again, something only a super wealthy Mm. person could do. But Hemings developed the famous recipe for macaroni and cheese that was served in Monticello and eventually like in finer homes across the country. 
In fact, Hemings talent created a lot of food and tools that Jefferson was long credited for, including the introduction of macaroni and cheese, ice cream, whipped cream, and French fries to the United wow, States. Wow, I did not know that. Some I know, of all me neither. my fa- not some of, but most of my favorite things. Literally some of the best foods, right? Mm-hmm. Hemings was freed by Jefferson in 1796 but only with the condition that he would train his younger brother, Robert, to replace him as chef in the Jefferson household. Jefferson had this idea that once he freed Hemings, that he would say, okay, now I'm going to keep working for you. But Hemings was like, no, I'm going to like go off and live my own life. Hemings unfortunately died at the age of 36 with only some kitchen utensils and four recipes to his name. Oh my God. How did he, do you know how he died? I mean, things were dodgy back then in terms of, like, record-keeping, but it, there there was a lot of speculation that he developed a serious problem with alcohol, mm. probably from just, like, a lifetime of oh. trauma. Uh, yeah. So – In 1802, when Jefferson famously served a macaroni pie at a state dinner, it was more than likely prepared from a recipe by James Hennings and cooked by his brother, Robert. Macaroni and cheese would remain a popular food item, but once again, only for wealthy people because until the Industrial Revolution, pasta was expensive and quite a delicacy. Here in the United States at that time, when someone like Thomas Jefferson serves macaroni and cheese, it is like the hottest, fanciest thing that you could serve and you want to serve it so people know that you too are the hottest and fanciest, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's ironic, but only in the Alanis Morissette kind of way, that the inventor of Kraft macaroni and cheese, the man that would bring mac and cheese into the life of every babysitter, latchkey kid, and college student, was actually Canadian. (laughs) Uh, I know, I know. J.L. Kraft, first name James, was born in Ontario, Canada, where he grew up on a dairy farm. He moved to Buffalo, New York in 1902, where he took a job as a – this is a weird job. It's no carpenter slash cough syrup manufacturer, (laughs) but it was secretary slash treasurer of the Shefford Cheese Company. The next year, he became a partner in the company. But then, and this just like ultimate kind of hashtag girl boss move, except of course no women are involved in this story. His partners dissolved their business agreement while he was on a business trip in Chicago. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. So this was not not a great time to be JL Kraft. He was stranded in this big city in Chicago with only $65 to his name. So he rented a horse and a wagon and started his own business buying cheese wholesale and selling it to grocers. I guess once a cheese man, always a cheese man. I don't know. He Cheese was his calling he knew, perhaps. He knew a lot about cheese. I mean, he grew up on he a really dairy did. farm. Yeah, he's a cheese expert. A few years later, he brought his brothers into the company because it was growing. And by 1914, JL Craft and Brothers Company opened its first cheese manufacturing plant in Stockton, Illinois. While Kraft didn't invent the idea of processed cheese. Which is like an American thing, right? Right, yes. He knew that it was an innovation that could change food as we know it. Which, spoiler, mm-hmm. it did. 
He won a patent for one processing method in 1916, which just like made the company explode in size. This new process would pasteurize cheese in a way that would make it longer lasting and able to be shipped long distances. It wouldn't need refrigeration and it was like shelf Mm -hmm. stable, meaning it lasted for a really, really long time. His method of processing cheese relied on a combination of citric acid and phosphate. So yeah, we're tossing some chemicals in there. His method paved the way for Velveeta in 1928, Kraft Dinner in 1937, Cheese Whiz in 1952, and Kraft Singles in 1965. So this is – I'm going to take a break here to just say something that I just have to get off my chest, which is like I – do not like Velveeta and I don't like cheese whiz and I don't like craft singles. <laughs> I don't know why. I think it's the texture. Mm. I don't know. They have a texture, right? They do. I I I like them. Um I don't eat them often. Like I love a grilled cheese with craft singles or whatever, you know. Right, I get it because it like melts better, right? Mm-hmm. It's like gooey and nice. Mm-hmm. Have you ever had to have uh, Velveeta fudge? No. Speaking of weird what? things. No. It's like a fudge. It's like a chocolate or peanut butter fudge, but you put Velveeta in what? it. People swear no. it gives it a better texture. Yeah, it's another like weird – I feel like it's like a 70s thing. I have never um, – But that like people still will wow you with every once in a while. I don't know if I've actually ever had the Velveeta – because we were like a Kraft mac and cheese family. Um, mm-hmm. I think you were kind of one or the other. and we. Yeah, I think so too. I, for the most part, I would say we were Kraft macaroni and cheese. Although like who's kidding? It was generic most of the time. But like my grandma, if you had macaroni and cheese at her house, it would be the kind that had the packet of like the squeezy Velveeta in yeah. it. You know, and I just like never liked that. But I know that other people super prefer that. I can't put my finger on what it is, but there's something about it that I don't like. Mm. Nonetheless, these products like changed the way people ate and still eat right now, right? Well, I mean the 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 uh, the mac and cheese, the ones that you just like literally they come in those cups and you put it in the microwave. I remember yeah. eating those in college. They oh were They're, an insane invention. Yeah, crazy for sure, for sure. Uh, all using this technology that JL Craft, you know developed back in like the early 1900s. And we probably couldn't have Lunchables without it. Everything goes back to Lunchables. Yeah, it all goes <laughs> back to Lunchables. You know, I'm pretty sure like the cheese in Lunchables is this kind of cheese, right? It has to be. I think it be. is, yeah. Um, well, in World War One, Kraft's company continued its exponential growth as it provided cheese in tins to the armed services. I think this is an important time to just call the obvious here that nothing builds a business like a war. Mm-hmm. And while that is so sad to think about, this, like the war itself, both World War One and World II, War II are, are really responsible for a lot of the biggest innovations in processed food, in shelf-stable food, of the, of the things we eat now, you know? Mm-hmm. The actual invention of Kraft macaroni and cheese, of Kraft dinner, happened during the Depression. A salesman in St. Louis would wrap rubber bands around packets of grated Kraft cheese and boxes of pasta and persuaded retailers to sell them as a unit. 
Kraft actually began boxing this up and selling it to customers in 1937, promising to feed a family of four for just 19 cents. I mean, in 1937, like, that's that's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah. Macaroni and cheese was no longer the food of the wealthy. It was the food for everyone. In the first year, 9 million boxes were sold. And overall, the timing of this product could not have been better because during World War II, convenience foods became more important than ever. Not only was there rationing of butter, milk, and cheese, but many women were now working outside the home as the men were away at war, and they needed an easy, nutritious meal for their children. Also important to call out, a lot of people didn't own a refrigerator. So they couldn't keep cheese and milk Mm -hmm. and butter on hand in the same way. Furthermore, a package of Kraft Dinner could last on the shelf 10 months. I swear it's longer, but at least then it it was. Yeah. During World War II, on average, 80 million boxes per year were sold. Of course, it helped that two boxes of Kraft Dinner could be purchased for one rationing coupon. So you got a lot of bang for your ration coupon buck, right? And it was delicious. And it was delicious, yeah. Here are some fun facts about Kraft macaroni and cheese. Even now, about one million boxes are bought each day. Wow. Kraft macaroni and cheese should be $3 today based on inflation, but it holds steady around $1. Hmm. Unsurprisingly, sales of Kraft macaroni and cheese picked up during the pandemic. And this is this is a weird one. The company added breakfast to Kraft macaroni and cheese packaging. They said, oh, really? yeah, they said 56% of parents have served their kids mac and cheese for breakfast more often during COVID-19 <gasps> related state lockdowns than previous months. That's I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it does. It does. In 2015, Kraft removed all artificial flavors, preservatives, and synthetic colors because, yes, there was a lot of yellow food coloring in there for a really long time. They removed that all from the box mac and cheese using paprika, annatto, and turmeric instead. Is there any nutritional value in Kraft mac and cheese? You know what? Based on what I was reading, it's, like, not bad, you know? Do they, like, add vitamins? Uh, I don't think they do that. Like cereal. Yeah, I know. <laughs> they should. I mean, they, imagine if they added like iron and stuff. Yeah, it'd be great. I don't think they do that though. But yeah, I mean, I think all in all, Kraft macaroni cheese is like not bad for you because it's just powdered cheese and pasta. Like it's not, it's not like some of the other foods that we've experienced in our lifetime that are like just food science, you know? Mm-hmm. Um. Canadians actually love Kraft Dinner. They eat 1.7 million of the 7 million boxes sold each week. Hmm. So, of course, in the mid-century, after World War II was over and the housewives were home, still wanting to prepare Kraft macaroni and cheese but not seem lazy, Kraft had to invent weird elaborate recipes using Kraft mac and cheese to get housewives to buy it, which is crazy talk to me because it's so delicious. But yeah, I found I found a ton of these, but here, here are a few of the hits. One's called the craft ring. Basically, you shape the pasta into a ring. You seal that with margarine so it holds its shape, and then you display meats around it. I would eat this. 
Okay. Right? That one doesn't sound bad. Wait, you seal it with, with margarine. margarine? Like if you brush it with margarine, it? it helps it stick together and hold its shape. You know? Like a ring. So you like put it in a, in one of those like rings. Yeah, yeah. Like but you have jello margarine mold. in it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. So that one's not bad. Basically, you're just eating, you know, some Kraft macaroni and cheese that's artfully arranged and some like meatloaf. It's, it's not terrible. Another one is tuna confetti casserole, which I – listen, I love a tuna casserole. I do not love cream of celery soup, oh, no. and that's one of the main ingredients. The next one, this one's a weird one, Kraft Dinner Medley. You make the macaroni and cheese, you add some peppers, and some hard-boiled eggs. What do you ooh. think of that one? <laughs> it's ooh, weird, right? Ooh, it's really weird. Um, there's another one called Kraft Dinner Timbales, which is basically like a pile, these little like haystacks of Kraft macaroni and cheese prepared as directed, then like resting in a soup of creamed tuna and peas. Ew. What's yeah. creamed tuna? I it's Ugh. like you're you know you're getting one of those cream of whatever no. soups. You're adding some tuna, oh. some peas. You're resting the tambales in there. I know it's really <laughs> ridiculous. Um I did look up Kraft macaroni and cheese in my favorite brand name recipe cookbook mm-hmm. and I found a couple. One was ham, cheese and macaroni casserole. Literally the only gre- ingredients are Kraft dinner Prepackaged ham lunch meat and some breadcrumbs. Hmm. Okay. The next one. Lunch meat. Okay. Yeah. It's not great. It's not terrible. That's <laughs> not great, but. Fiesta Mac salad. Once again, you're getting the box of macaroni and cheese. You're mixing that all up. You're adding tomato, cucumber, carrot, and Miracle Whip. I'll mm. say the thing mm. that really grosses me out about this is that you cook the macaroni and cheese, you prepare it like you're supposed to, and then you add all this stuff. So you've got like hot Miracle Whip. I don't, I don't know. Don't oh, love it. Oh, no. This, That's like something that they would bring to one of these these functions, these like church functions. Yeah, yeah. No, it, 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 that one I've like, I feel like I've, I've been subjected to. Um, <laughs> on the opposite page of this recipe was a recipe for macaroni fruit salad that I just have to share. It's Plain macaroni, so it's not craft, just the plain. Canned pineapples, canned oranges. Apparently, at this point, there were canned grapes. Do you remember Whoa. this? No. No. This is before our time. And then you mix all that with celery, your favorite mini marshmallows, Blech. apple, sour cream, obviously mm. some mayonnaise and some nuts, and you serve <laughs> it on lettuce. Yeah. Oh, no. This is like pasta salad <laughs> nightmares. Oh, yeah, it is. Um, And speaking of just like weird foods mixed together, recently, like this year, that uh, I want to say it's a Brooklyn ice cream company, Van Leeuwen, did a collab with Kraft (laughs) to create Kraft macaroni and cheese ice cream. That's actually really funny because um, Neil and I got Van Leeuwen ice cream last night. And um, I went to the website and that's, that's, that's their, they do a special every month and that's their special. And I was like, holy shit, there's a Kraft mac and cheese ice cream. And Neil's like, that sounds disgusting. And it was sold out. Ah, oh, bummer. It's like completely sold out everywhere. I mean, okay, I've been thinking about this one. And I do think that if you had a nice vanilla kind of ice cream mm-hmm. and you sprinkled some of that cheese powder on it, yeah, it would be good. I mean, you know what's delicious is like 
it's it's kind of like you know like the cheese popcorn you get like the trio of popcorns where there's like the the cheese popcorn and then there's like the sweet like caramel popcorn you eat them together mm-hmm, mm-hmm. not that i'm saying that's what this is but, but like, i think it is similar i yeah while sweet back, and savory there was a guest on npr who was talking about unusual ice cream toppings and how great they are and one that she called out was like that everything bagel seasoning on like a vanilla ice cream and oh, i was shit. like i would eat that that sounds great mm-hmm. to me also salty savory mixed with sweet also what a great idea for a podcast <laughs> what <laughs> oh like uh, uh things you could put on ice cream <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that actually sounds like some quality programming right there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would, yeah, I would listen to people try things. Me too, like live on the air. I need to know. Uh-huh. Yeah. Start with our golden macaroni made from special durum wheat. Boil for seven minutes. Drain and add the flavor of sharp aged cheddar. Kraft makes it all so easy. Now take credit for a home-cooked family favorite that costs only pennies a serving. No wonder it's America's favorite package dinner. Kraft Macaroni and Cheese. A great idea for good cooks on a budget. You can't talk about Kraft Macaroni and Cheese without talking about its bizarro cousin, Hamburger Helper. I don't think I've actually ever had Hamburger Helper. Wow. I just am going to tell you, and I know some listeners, I know Derek, for example, is going to agree with me here. You are missing out. Um, or, or at least a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. A little bit. When I think of Halloween costumes that I wish I had worn but never have, a few come to mind. One is Lady Gaga's famous Vogue cover with mm-hmm. a dress made of Hello Kitty stuffed animals. I've always wanted to dress as Marie Antoinette. And oh, most yeah. importantly, I've always wanted to be sexy hamburger helper. Like, picture it, okay? So it's like the hand, right? Uh-huh. The mascot. By the way, his name's Lefty. So the hand is like the upper part of your body. And then maybe you wear some cute, like, uh-huh. sparkly shorts and, like, fishnets and then, like, some, like, jazzy, like, tap shoes or something. It's in, a, like, a white glove, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and like, a no- like, a big round clown nose yeah no i mean like so i'm imagining that the face of the hand is on your chest right your one arm is going through the thumb your other arm is going through the other finger because that's the other thing about lefty which i think is a little chilling is that he only has four fingers uh maybe some sort of kitchen accident i don't know it's never addressed i don't know right so anyway so like the two other fingers would be like coming off the top of your head and so maybe you could actually see kind of phallic too yeah Definitely. It's very it's it's very weird. Well, I want you to picture this. It's late 1970. It's the United States of America. Jimmy Carter is president. Led Zeppelin is the coolest band. You're driving a huge car. Everyone's driving just like mm-hmm. a huge car, right? Gas guzzler. Just a gas a guzzler. And it's like leaded gas. So it's like yeah. fucking with everyone's health. You're laying out with baby oil and you don't even know about skin cancer. You're just like, this is it. I am tan. The dollar isn't trading well. And even worse, there is a beef shortage. Oh, wow. I know. Interesting. So I was like, okay, well, who's to blame for this meat crisis of 1970? Apparently, anchovies. What? A decrease in the population of anchovies drove up the cost of beef because farmers had been relying on anchovies as animal feed. Wait, really? I know. I thought 
they fed cows like corn and stuff. They probably they do, do corn now. and grass. Yeah, I and mean, this is a different time, right? With less anchovies, anchovies, yeah, yeah. So with less of that, the price of animal feed went up, which then drove up the price of beef. I'm so curious about this anchovies. It kind of thing. it grosses me out. I didn't know that cows ate fish. Me neither. And I mean, should they? I don't know. This isn't that podcast. I mean, I know that an pigs answer. eat everything. Right. Goats eat everything. Goats eat everything. Yeah. But like horses don't. No. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, well, Betty Crocker had a solution. You know what? I should just tell you now that Betty Crocker is not and never was a real person, uh, which mm. I also learned today. Kind of blew my mind. No. Just a fake character always played by actresses or models. That was created by General Mills, the parent company of Betty with, Crocker. With, of course, the nostalgic name of Betty. Yes. Yes. It, and it is a good name, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that year, General Mills, under their Betty Crocker umbrella, introduced what it calls on its own website, the, quote, undisputed king of boxed dinners. I'm not sure what Kraft thinks of that because I don't know. I think Kraft macaroni and cheese is probably the king of Fox dinners, but we'll just let (laughs) General Mills have that. That was the year that Hamburger Helper was launched to deal with this meat crisis. With just the use of a single pan and a pound of hamburger, Hamburger Helper promised a hot, nutritious filling meal for a family. And most importantly, it was affordable. The original flavors were beef noodle, potato stroganoff, an intriguing one called hash. Uh, a bunch of Googling mm. told me that it was con- had dried potatoes in it. It's probably like corned beef hash. Yeah, but with hamburger. But I, with hamburger. I'd exactly. probably eat it. I don't know why I'm acting like, I don't know. It's probably good. Um, it's like hashed browns. Yeah, yeah. And actually, I will say, I found a couple blogs where people talked about this um, and people loved the hash. They were sad to see it go. Um, Rice Oriental, which is racist name, but (laughs) but apparently very delicious. And many people have very fond memories of this one. And then Chili Tomato, which was formerly known as Chuck Wagon Dinner. Of course. And it was just like, you know, like pasta and a red sauce with some hamburger. Well, Hamburger Helper was an instant hit. In the first year of Hamburger Helper's existence, 27% of U.S. households purchased it. Wow. In 2005, Food Network rated it third on its list of top five fad foods of 1970. On one hand, it makes sense that this product would be a hit because many Americans were stressing about putting food on the table. On the other hand... Betty Crocker had launched four similar dinner mixes in 1967. Noodles stroganoff, macaroni montebello, noodles canton, and this is a weird one, rice karaoke. Yes, karaoke. I don't know why. General Mills believes that the reason the first round of meals didn't work is that they had to be made using two pans. One to cook the noodles, the other to brown the hamburger, and this turned off customers. I personally think it's more just like a perfect timing and maybe better flavor situation. Like, I don't think, who cares if you have to use two pans? I don't know. But Hamburger Helper was wild in the 70s. 
super popular food until the late 70s, just like with Jell-O, where people were like, uh, this doesn't seem very healthy. And, you know, we want to eat like real foods, real vegetables, real meats, that kind of thing. General Mills decided instead of like changing up the formula, making it healthier or whatever, that what people really needed was a jazzy mascot. <laughs> and so they invented yep. Lefty, the four-fingered left-handed white glove with a face on the palm and a red spherical clown nose. And believe it or not, it worked. Sales actually jumped up considerably. Even today, about one million households eat Hamburger Helper for dinner each weeknight. In 2013, Hamburger Helper did a major rebrand, both in terms of packaging and dropping the hamburger part of its name. Now it's just Helper, which is weird. Mm. And the marketing, I think this is really interesting, the marketing fo- focuses on young men. Oh. Because apparently a lot of young men love some Helper. That actually makes a lot of sense. It does. It does. There are over 24 flavors of Helper as of right now, and they all – I looked at a list of them. They all kind of sound the same. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it seems like they're a little superfluous. <laughs> so, Kim, where do you stand on brands doing social media pranks on April's full, April Fool's Day? Where do I stay? I, I – I feel like I'm so busy, I don't even pay attention. And I didn't even realize they were doing that. (laughs) Somewhere like around 2015, 2016, brands were like, you know what? We should do pranks on social media for April Fool's Day. And at first it was kind of funny. I think in the past couple of years, people have been like, just knock it off. Seriously. Just stop it. They still do it. Well, on April Fool's Day in 2016, General Mills commissioned an EP as a prank. It was called Watch the Stove. According to a press release, the EP was produced for General Mills by a team at St. Paul, Minnesota's McNally Smith College of Music. And the EP's title is a parody of the Jay-Z and Kanye West collaborative album, Watch the Throne. Uh. It contained five songs, all of which are about Hamburger Helper. (laughs) And I'm going to tell you all. Well, first off, I'm going to share the link in the show notes for you to listen to this. I listened to the whole thing today. One of the songs is called In Love with the Glove. Okay? Um, There's – every song is literally about cooking and eating Hamburger Helper. <laughs> it sounds really good. And then you like listen to the lyrics and you're like a little embarrassed. Like I was like, what if Dustin comes in here and this guy's <laughs> rapping about cheese and hamburger? Like, how am I gonna feel? Um, still nonetheless, like really worth checking out in a really strange way. The playlist actually went viral and was played over four million times on SoundCloud in less than three days. Wow. Yeah. I wonder how much it really did add to this young male demand right right it probably worked yeah it was really really smart actually um i did want to just add that with the success of hamburger helper uh betty crocker general mills decided to figure out other ways to help you with other crises over the years in 1972 tuna helper arrived on the scene still going strong fruit helper 
was launched in 1973, and this was actually a dessert product that helped oh. you make desserts using canned oh, fruit. No. Yeah, this I don't like the sound of that. Chicken Helper arrived in 1984. I definitely remember seeing commercials for it, but I've never had it. Mm -hmm. My mom really hated chicken when I was a kid, so we didn't eat a lot of chicken in our house. Uh, we also, like, my mom hates spaghetti because she feels like it's messy. So when we were having spaghetti, we had to use macaroni. It's weird. Anyway. I mean, she should have just used some Jello and <laughs> anyway, made a neat, yeah. tidy Dude, spaghetti. when we were talking about putting your salad in Jello, <laughs> I was like, my mom would so totally do that. <laughs> You're unlocking a memory for me of a Jello mold that I've seen going around the internet forever that I'm mad at myself for not bringing up in the last episode, which is basically like SpaghettiOs in a Jello mold with <gasps> hot dogs cut up. Shut up. I'm going to find a picture and send it to you, but I'm going to wait oh. until it gives you nightmares. Uh, <laughs> I know. Anyway, uh, Pork Helper, 2003, not around anymore. Asian Helper, 2006, still around as far as I know. Hmm. Like their mid-century counterparts, people continue to be obsessed with doctoring up some helper with the help of peas, additional cheese, pepperoni, etc. And I definitely saw some recipes on the internet from like the 70s and 80s where they were like, look how you can make this tamale casserole with hamburger helper. And you're like, mm -hmm. at this point, why don't you just make a tamale casserole? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> the internet is filled with advice on how to take hamburger helper, take hamburger helper to the next level, including, and this one really, I can't explain it, but it makes me feel really uncomfortable turning it into soup. Oh. This advice, this doctoring it up is more important than ever because, of course, Hamburger Helper and its other family of helpers saw an increase in sales during the pandemic, along with canned soups and really anything that was easy to mm -hmm. eat at home. Uh, I'm just going to add, every once in a while, I will get Amy's makes a, like a, their own version of Hamburger Helper mm. now pretty good um hits the spot but all of these helper meals including the amy's one they have a crazy amount of sodium in them so they're not probably something you should be eating every day what is what's it got the flavoring behind it what makes it so tasty i think it's the salt honestly like msg or something i feel like whereas like craft macaroni and cheese for the most part is like not very food sciencey other than like it's powdered cheese Hamburger Helper is a lot of additives and flavors okay. and like, you know, it gets the umami. It's a little bit sweet. It's super salty. And it's got a really long and complex ingredient list. Uh, mm -hmm. And it doesn't taste like anything else because it's not – I mean, it's not real food, if you will. It's science, <laughs> you know. Ate a lot of it growing up. No hard feelings. <laughs> Mom's working late, huh? Uh, let's see. The skillet's out, the table's set, the roast isn't thawed. Dad, you need a hand. Hi. Who's that? That's the helping hand Mom gets with Hamburger Helper. Sure, because Hamburger Helper can help you make a delicious, hearty skillet dinner in a snap. I'm home. How's dinner? Dad cooks real good. <laughs> Even though he's all thumbs. Hamburger Helper, when you need a helping hand. And speaking of something else I ate a lot of growing up, 
frozen meals. Oh, me too. This is my favorite part of this episode. I'm just going to tell you all that because I was laughing my butt off as I was looking at all of these old frozen meals over time. They are hilarious. And some of them I remember still existing when we were pretty young, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so in 1925, Clarence Birdseye, that's really his name. I talked about him in the last episode and how it seemed on that one series that he was going to hook up with the heiress to the post-serial fortune. I stand by that. Um, Well, Clarence Birdseye invented a machine for freezing packaged fish that would revolutionize the storage and preparation of food. Obviously, you can go out now and buy Birdseye frozen vegetables, right? Well, of course... We're seeing how, you know, good old Clarence Birdseye can freeze vegetables, he can freeze fish. Of course, people start thinking like, well, what about a meal that could be, say, fish and vegetables all together, right? Um, Maxon Food Systems used Birdseye's technology to manufacture and sell the first complete frozen dinners to airlines in 1945. And I would wonder, is this when airplane food became terrible? Right. Right. The bigger plan there was that, like, once they got this frozen dinner to airlines thing under their belts, they were going to roll it out to supermarkets. But this whole plan just fell apart because the company's founder died. So Maxon Food Systems was out of this race to create frozen meals for consumers. Other brands had been trying various combinations of frozen side dishes and main courses, including one brand called Fridge meal, which offered combinations like beef stew with corn and peas. All right, that seems mm-hmm. standard. Veal goulash mm. with peas and potatoes, and chicken chow mein with egg rolls and fried rice. Okay, I would eat that. Yeah. Maybe it was the name, maybe it was the food, but Fridge meal never achieved the success of the real granddaddy of frozen meals, Swanson. Yes. The legend of Swanson's TV dinners, and yes, they literally owned and invented that name, TV dinners. It goes like this. In 1953, the company found itself in a real quandary. They had way overestimated demand for turkey that season. And so after Thanksgiving, they were left with 260 tons of frozen turkey sitting in 10 refrigerated railroad cars. Wow. To make matters Infinitely more complicated and urgent, the train's refrigeration only worked when the train was running, like when the cars were literally moving. I don't know why. Oh, my God. So these trains were traveling back and forth nonstop between Swanson's Nebraska headquarters and the East Coast until they could figure out what to do with the turkey. A Swanson salesman named Jerry Thomas had an idea. Why not serve them alongside cornbread stuffing and sweet potatoes, something Thanksgiving-y, in partitioned aluminum trays that could be heated in the oven? Everybody liked that idea, but there was a concern like, what if we give everyone food poisoning? So Betty Cronin, Swanson's bacteriologist, was tasked with figuring out how to heat the meat and the vegetables at the same time while killing foodborne germs. And 
by gone it, she figured it out. Wow. Yeah. Betty, another Betty. Betty, Betty, Betty. Mm-hmm. So there's been a lot of squabbling over the years about who gets credited for this invention of TV dinners, but this version of events is the most widely accepted. And regardless of who invented them, Swanson had a certified hit on its hands, selling 10 million trays in the first year of production. Wow. Of course, other companies see this and they're like, we got to get on this action. And so we see the rise of Morton's and Banquet as well. Swanson coined the term TV dinner at just the right time. In 1950, only 9% of U.S. households had television sets. In 1955, that number rose to 64%, and by 1960, it was 87%. Owning a television and eating in front of it, which we might think of now as, I mean, to be honest, we do it in my house all the time, but a little depressing. At that time, it was practically an aspirational lifestyle. Mm -hmm. It was the sign that you had made it to the middle class. Furthermore, more women were joining the workforce, and these dinners guaranteed a nutritious hot meal for their families. Swanson ran TV advertisements that depicted elegant modern women serving these delicious meals to grateful family members. (laughs) In 1962, Barbara freaking Streisand told the New Yorker, quote, the best fried chicken I know comes with a TV dinner. Wow. Now, here's the interesting thing about TV dinners because the other two foods that we've talked about here, right, craft dinners and hamburger helper were really, really inexpensive. And like that was the gimmick, right? The original TV dinners weren't cheap. They were 98 cents, which is, are you ready for this? I did the conversion. $9.97 in 2021. Wow. I know. Like they were like not cheap. That's like going going to maybe a restaurant or fast food or something. Yeah, I was thinking like Chipotle or something. Yeah, exactly. Well, over time, prices did come down because, you know, the novelty sort of wore off a little bit. They had to stay competitive. And while some criticized the lack of flavor or the depressingness of eating in front of a TV, others valued the good prices and the portion control offered by those little compartments. And getting women out of the kitchen. Yes. And letting them join the workforce. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So competition became more and more fierce. It was about the most unique meal at the best price, right? So brands started to try some new things to mix success. And these, this is where this gets ridiculous. Morton began offering a three-course meal that included chicken and dumplings. Of course, it had peas. Always peas. A brownie. And this was the weird thing. The, a pull-out refreshing fruit salad that you would like mm. sit on the counter to thaw while the rest was in the oven. Of course, Swanson was like, oh, no, no, no. We're going to do this too. <laughs> so they started offering three-course meals that had a meat main dish. It might be beef. It might be chicken. Usually a side of peas or corn. A dessert like cherry crisp. And then a soup. Oh, Chicken noodle or tomato soup. Um, as I was working on this, I was remembering the weird, sad peas and carrots blend that you would often see in TV dinners. Yes. 
They were always the worst. So gross. So gross. I actually thought I hated peas and carrots until I was an adult. And I was like, oh, they're both really delicious. They've just been ruined for me by cans and TV dinners. Yeah, yeah, and frozen. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Swanson also tried adding a blueberry muffin to its classic Salisbury steak dinner, which is so random to me. Like, why? A blueberry muffin? Yeah. In 1974, Morton offered what I would consider a proto-kids cuisine, offering a Twinkie with either a burger, spaghetti, pizza, or a hot dog, and it was called the Morton Twinkie Supper. i probably eat that. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Swanson also offered one of my favorite TV dinners as a kid. I'm pretty sure it doesn't exist anymore. Beans and Frank's. With cornbread and baked apples. Oh, wow. I mean, alongside that, they were also like, here's spaghetti and meatballs, which I remember my brother liked. I didn't. And corned beef hash, which soon went away because that is like too weird. And all of them came with peas and baked apples. I remember these baked apples in other TV dinners. And they were always kind of like, they weren't that good. They're always kind of like fibrous. Yeah. It was like and they were like the cook. bad apples. And they were like, it well, was. we got to do something with them. Yeah. Exactly. My grandma, I remember in the 80s, like, she, I mean, you know, real talk. The women in my family don't cook very well. I mean, I just told you about all the pasta salad nightmares. Um, <laughs> and so they would they would take a lot of shortcuts, as I'm sure a lot of, of mothers and grandmothers were in the 80s and the 90s. And so she would always make these like frozen – baked apples that that's all it was it was just a pan of that that you baked in the oven it was probably swanson um Mm -hmm. and they were they were totally the same apples well next they decided they were going to try just like a really out of the norm foods right so swanson introduced a polynesian dinner Mm. which included chow mein and orange tea cake and sweet and sour chicken and it actually sounds pretty good to me although this meal to be clear, is not Polynesian. <laughs> no, it looks like Chinese. Yeah, it's I, I, yeah, it's it's terrible. I mean, like the racism American in food Chinese. in the 70s and before the 70s is horrible. Um, this is one example. But I will say even in the photo, it looks kind of delicious to me. Totally. Right? Like you'd feel – It does not look bad. Yeah, it does not look bad. Like bring it back. Give it a better <laughs> name. Next, they were like, let's do a German dinner, okay? That included beef with sour Barton gravy, spatzel, you know, the pasta, mm-hmm. Bavarian cabbage, and to top it all off, a prune and apricot compote. Not bad. <laughs> yeah, it's a little fancy. Um, <laughs> well, Libby's went a totally different direction. They wanted to woo the children's market with its Libbyland meals. The box popped up into a cartoon backsplash. It came with – initially it was called like Magic Milk and it was just milk. But then it turned into Nesquik. Um, mm-hmm. And the options included Pirate Picnic, Sundown Supper, Sea Divers Dinner, and Safari Supper. Exciting. Yeah, very exciting. After a certain point, specifically that period in the late 70s when Americans fell out of love with packaged foods – TV dinners became something for lonely people, busy people, children home alone, but certainly nothing cool or trendy or delicious. In the mid-80s, Campbell's developed a new tray 
that was microwave safe. So all of the aluminum metal trays went away, making this stuff even more convenient. Like pop it in the microwave, right? This is a time when every work break room had a microwave and every office had that one person who would microwave fish. Oh, right? my God. Is we actually, I remember we one of the offices that I worked in, there was a no fish policy. Fair. Like you weren't allowed to. And I was like, thank God. <laughs> Microwaving fish is just cruel. Yeah, yeah. So like at this point, you know, it's sort of like already we'd reached this point where in general – People would be like, TV dinners, they're like not that tasty. Uh, they're kind of depressing maybe, you know. But on the other hand, people were like, they're affordable. They're easy. I'm busy, right? Mm-hmm. But like in general, we weren't like, this is some top-notch food, right? Well, now turn it into a microwavable thing and it loses all cachet. Like it's like, oh, <laughs> and yes. you microwaved it? Um, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but one of my best friends growing up, Laura Curley, her mom – Worked, you know, she was an accountant. She got home from work every day at like 6 p.m. And then she had to cook dinner for Laura and her stepdad. And so she had three microwaves that were sort of stacked on top of one another. And like a wide array of microwave cookbooks. I mean, she cooked all the food, but in the microwave. Like she wasn't serving them frozen meals, but it was all cooked in the microwave. That is hilarious. Wild, right? But she could cook a whole meal then in half an hour, you know, instead of a couple hours of like prep work and putting it in the oven and all that stuff. So at this point, frozen meals were really marketed towards either dieters. I mean, you and I talked about this offline, like lean cuisine, all those uh-huh. Weight Watchers meals. I mean, sometimes I still get some lean cuisines or like elevated versions of them. Because mm-hmm. you know how like now they have like organic, like it's uh, not necessarily lean cuisine, but it's like or Amy's does really good ones. Amy's has the best of the frozen meals. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll do an Amy's. Um, then there were children. They also marketed towards children because, like, you know, feed these kids yep. fast. And that period of time that you and I lived in where we were forced to eat horrible food all the time had passed. Yeah. And now it was like, I also oh. didn't like any food. So sometimes I just get these <laughs> so children, when I was a kid. So it was like, you know what? There was, a, there was a change where it was like, let children eat what they want to eat. And so I'd be like, just microwave something for the kids and then we'll, the rest of us will eat this hideous pasta salad or whatever, right? So <laughs> yeah. definitely companies were like, let's keep pushing food for children. So it was like kids cuisine. Oh, I ate that. I remember it was like one of those things, right? Like a lot of things where I wanted it so badly. I continuously wanted it so badly. Every time I had one, I could see that it wasn't that good, and yet I still yes. continued to want another one. Because of the ads. They had really good ads. They did. And they made it look super good. Like, they obviously the food styling in the ads was really great. And so it looked just <laughs> yeah. delicious. Yeah, totally. And then you got it, and it had like that sad baked brownie. And like uh, whatever pea and green bean or whatever situation. And, and it had those like – I remember they had like the animal-shaped chicken nuggets. Yep, yep. But it always came out and it was just – it tasted like gross school lunch. Yeah, it wasn't good. It wasn't good. Mm-hmm. I feel like I kind of liked the pizza. Uh, right. It was like a little French a p- bread pizza. That was okay. Yeah, that yeah. was okay. But in general, it just wasn't that good. Um, it came with like stickers or temporary tattoos mm-hmm. or something. And that was like another gimmick. And like – Every time we would go grocery shopping, my brother and I wanted them. And my mom would 
let us get one, you know, that was like our treat or whatever. And then the day that we ate it, it was like, oh, that wasn't that good. But then the next time we won, <laughs> I wanted them again, you know. And so kid cuisine still going strong over children being obsessed with things that aren't very good. Yep. Um, but there were other foods of that era that were really marketed with this idea of like, kids love them and they're really cool and easy to make. And we're going to bombard kids with commercials about this, like bagel yeah. bites, oh yeah, pizza rolls. I oh, mean, I still love pizza rolls. Oh, me too. They hit the spot. Hot pockets, not a fan of hot pockets, uh-huh. but you know, you can look at hot pockets and you can see a direct line between these, early TV dinners and Hot Pockets, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, or those, like, uh, burritos. Yes. You know, those are really good. Yeah. Those, like, frozen I'm, burritos. Dustin eats a lot of frozen burritos, actually. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I ate a lot of those growing up. Or, like, all the pot pies. Oh, yes. I mean, like, I ate a lot of frozen food when I was a kid, for sure. I'm sure most people did. I'm sorry, but frozen pizza is – one of my favorite things. Me too. I'm going to have a frozen pizza when we're done with this, actually. Um, yeah, oh, I know. Which, what kind? Um, it's like a gluten-free Udi's one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty good. Uh, I'm familiar with that one. Yeah. I will, I will eat any frozen pizza. Yeah, I, I do love an Amy's. Me too. I love an Amy's. I love like a shitty Totino's, mm. you know? like I love it. Yeah, I absolutely love a Jack's. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Um. You know, I frozen pizza, I feel like, really started to have its heyday in the late 80s and early 90s, you know? Maybe the earlier 80s with Totino's and stuff like that and Tony's and all of that. But, like, that was another way of adapting all of the technology around frozen food, but still mm-hmm. really targeting young people there, you know? I mean, the frozen food sections, it's really funny to see. You know, I've, I've lived, obviously, on in the Midwest, East Coast, West Coast. And it, it's it's really interesting to see the variations of of you know obviously the consumption trends within mm-hmm. each of those those areas. So like in the Midwest, p- frozen pizza is such a big thing that there are you know like one of the grocery stores that we always went to. Um, uh, God, what's it called? Uh, Woodman's. It has literally, and it's huge. Obviously, it's in this giant fucking building. Uh, um, it's like a city block. And it has an entire aisle, both sides, like like actual like full long aisle that's only pizza. It's all pizza. It's literally every, t- there's even like Uno's pizza. It's every single frozen pizza you can possibly imagine is in this grocery store and I grew up eating so much frozen pizza because it's such a thing but then I moved to the east coast mm-hmm. and frozen pizza is not big there at all because there's pizza you can get pizza yeah anywhere. yeah I could see that like, that makes sense and it was always me. so expensive like you get the pizza in the midwest and it was like I don't know two or three dollars for a jacks and then you go to the east coast and it's like seven dollars oh yeah I I will say this is something Dustin and I talk about a lot and to be fair we do shop in some of the bougier grocery stores sometimes. We were like frozen pizza pricing has gotten out of hand. Mm-hmm. I if I'm I'm not going to buy a $12 frozen pizza. I will right. go get something else, you know? And so I mean, but there's obviously a market for it, right? Like frozen pizza for many of us is like an integral part of like growing up for us and it's a yes. comfort food, right? Absolutely. In Philly during the pandemic, you, I mean, not that the pandemic is over. How about we try this? In Philly, 
when I lived there during the pandemic, now I don't mm-hmm. live there, we could not get a frozen pizza for right. easily three, four, five months. Like I remember we that. were longing for frozen pizza, you know? When we finally get yeah. to have it, it was like, oh my God, we'll never, we'll never abandon you again. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I, yeah, I, I mean, I remember, yeah, with when you went to the grocery store, any of this type of food was you couldn't get, but you could get all the fresh vegetables you wanted and all the champagne. You <laughs> yeah. This sounds like great, right? Except that's like, not what we wanted, right? So no. that's a, important that we're bringing that up because, like all the convenience foods we've talked about today, frozen meals got a massive shot in the arm during the pandemic, that's Mm -hmm. no pun intended there. With restaurants closed during COVID-19, people spent nearly 50% more on frozen meals in April 2020 over April 2019. And kind of that just has been going strong because people are still eating Mm -hmm. more at home. But it's not like they have more free time because they're home because they're like, have kids in cyber school and just all kinds of other stuff to deal with. They're working from home and there's like no work-life balance. And so processed packaged foods are bigger than ever. And interestingly, I was reading about how there's this food trend that's been happening during the pandemic for like higher end fancier frozen meals. Like restaurants are starting to create their own brands of it. You know, you can go to like a Whole Foods and see some like crazily expensive fancy frozen meals that are like 10 12 15 dollars and people are just looking for a higher end experience but want that convenience and also don't want to go to a restaurant yet because it just doesn't feel safe to them or deal with delivery or whatever it yeah, is yeah yeah totally i mean delivery is really expensive like a 15 dollar fancy tv dinner sounds expensive but then you're like if i got that meal delivered it would be like 35 dollars yeah, because you're paying <laughs> so many fees. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So you're de- you're actually just saving money. Yeah, totally. And I will say something I've noticed in the past like 10 years is like more and more of these like natural brands and new like natural, organic, vegan, gluten-free, like dietary restriction-based foods are popping up in the frozen section. And that section of frozen is kind of expanding, even as otherwise frozen food has kind of fallen even less in out of favor. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. I mean, now, of course, in the pandemic times, everybody's eating it all. But I've noticed the organic or gluten-free or vegan vegetarian section expanding while maybe like the actual like regular frozen meals are shrinking. Yeah. Um, still tons of frozen potato options, though. Going strong. Where I'm like, wow. And and, and pizza. And pizza. Now, from banquet comes. (laughs) What is it, Cynthia? What is it? Giblet gravy and sliced turkey. Yes, giblet gravy and sliced turkey. Together in the most significant frozen dish of our time, Buffet Supper. Winner of three Banquet Academy Awards. Best sliced turkey. Best performance by a giblet gravy in a supporting role. Best performance by a housewife. I just put it in the oven, and by and by it was done, and I had a delicious buffet supper. Oh, yes, I did. Slices of turkey, all covered with gravy and little bitty giblets. Do you hear me? 
from the same producers who brought you Beef Stew, Salisbury Steak with Gravy, and the unforgettable Chicken and Dumplings comes the outstanding banquet production of the 20th Century, Giblet Gravy and Sliced Turkey. Color by Paprika, now appearing citywide in a frozen food section near you. That's my story about some of the biggest convenience foods or processed foods of our lives. That's amazing, Amanda. Thank you. Um, This was really fun to work on, and I would love to do another episode someday of this ilk because, gosh, I mean, like, we didn't talk about spam, you know? Or what the heck is the deal with Miracle Whip, and why is it so popular in certain areas? is it? Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, if you have a, like, food of that ilk that you'd like to hear more about, send it our way so I can do another episode in the future. Wait, I'm going to open one more recipe in this book, one more page in the favorite brand name recipe cookbook so we can go out on on an educational note. Here we go. Um, How about some hurry up spaghetti and ham? Ew. (laughs) Uh, Thinly sliced onion, cooking oil, boiled ham, cut into strips, butter or margarine, chicken broth, thin spaghetti, egg yolks, parsley, and Parmesan cheese. No, thank you. What about a walnut prune souffle? Eh, That doesn't sound so bad. How about a purple plum souffle? But this is weird because it includes gelatin. This is not a souffle. It's a jello mold. Don't lie to me. Oh, my God. (laughs) Ooh, but it has rum in it. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much. We'll be back next week. Thank you. Bye.